I'm guessing this email right here is coming from someone who lives in Guelph. Guelph, Ontario. Not too far away from here. It's from Dean, and Dean writes, Mike, you sure you still want to go through with that bet that you made with our own Larry Malott at the beginning of the London Knights Guelph Storm series? That's all it says. The answer is yes. Yes. Was in it from the beginning. I still have a lot of confidence. Mike Hendricks had sent along ideas for bets. See, I don't know whether Larry was looking for this, but I was looking for this. We're going to have a little fun. We are part of the Chorus family, so why not? And we determined that if the London Knights beat the Guelph Storm, that Larry would have to broadcast a game in a Knights jersey. I, that's fine, but I, I liked Mike's idea better. And we talked about this at the outset of the series. Can you actually have two different kinds of bets? And yeah, why not? One person does one thing, one person does another thing. It's like all this silly politician craft beer stuff. That's got to stop. I think John Tory and the mayor of Orlando, that's it. You guys are done now. It's all finished now. No more craft beer. We're going to give you a six-pack of craft beer in our... Done. No more of that. Let's be a little bit more creative than craft beer. Sorry. But... Mike gave a great idea. He said the losing broadcaster should take a page out of the Mighty Ducks movie and should be tied to the net like Goldberg was, and pucks should be fired at that particular losing broadcaster. They can wear goalie equipment. And I said, sure. I don't know when we would do this. We'll work on that at a later date. Details, details. But, yeah, I'm still in. Dean from, I think, Guelph. If you ever want to email anything, and if you want to email Dean, I might be able to set you up that way, too. Uh, Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can reach us at 519-643-2222. And you can find me on Twitter at Stubbs980. Welcome to the show today. We're going to talk about a couple of things that I'm fascinated by. One in just a little over a half hour from now. London Deputy Fire Chief Jack Burt is going to join us. And... You have to marvel at the skill that firefighters have and the fact that they can go in and put out a fire in a building before this thing gets down to the ground. And the reason this comes up obviously goes back to the terrible fire yesterday at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France. And I think Jacqueline LaBelle summed it up beautifully at 1 o'clock in her news saying the skyline's changed. That's... That's the toughest part of anybody who lives in a city. Can you imagine if one London place instantly wasn't there? What it would do to the the skyline? And London is starting to form a skyline. We're getting more and more buildings downtown. And that goes to create a skyline that you can see from a long way away. Or maybe we'd almost have to look at one of the new twin towers, the apartments and suites that are kind of across from Budweiser Gardens and just down the street. Maybe that would change the skyline. But just imagine being in a city where that skyline was everything, and then it's not there. And that's happened in tragic ways in a couple of cities. This is kind of the latest. But what we're going to look at in about a half hour from now is what it takes to fight a fire in a church. Well, how's that any different? Well, it's a wood structure normally. A lot of churches date back a long time, not as far back as Notre Dame, which is going back to the 13th century. 
I mean, the things that were lost yesterday that can't be replaced, you can have people say all they want that, oh, yeah, well, we'll rebuild it. Yeah, I'm sure you will, and that will be great. But no, you've lost so much. I did like the line, though, from a lot of people who worshipped at Notre Dame Cathedral who said, yeah, but that's that's not what our religion is. That is a place where you can go, but that's not what religion is. And I thought, I like that that, that line came out. Um, we are going to look at just the, the idea of a really high ceiling. Even in your house, if you have really high ceilings, if you do have a fire, it changes the strategy of how you have to fight that fire. There were actually water bombs being lobbed onto the top of Notre Dame Cathedral yesterday. So we'll look at fighting a fire in a big structure, an open structure, a high roof structure like a church with Deputy Fire Chief Jack Burt. We're going to talk about genetically modified foods today. Canada has given the go-ahead, Ottawa, federal government, has given the go-ahead to put genetically modified salmon into stores. I don't know what the cost is. I hope it's cheaper you know, I hope this doesn't go the way that organic does, where everything's more expensive. And sometimes I wonder, you know, do you just paste the word organic on there so that you can charge me 30% more? Is that what that is? I don't know. But I don't know what the cost is of salmon. But I myself would be open to eating genetically modified foods as long as I know what's been modified. Because you can naively say, yeah, let's just have some of that. No problem. But then you go looking and there can sometimes be ties to things that are done and very serious diseases that you definitely would not want to come in contact with. So that battle exists. And we have people saying, no, this genetically modified stuff, too soon, too soon. But when it's introduced into our stores, when it's introduced into being able to go to the grocery store and and buy a little bit, and that's been going on for longer than just now. But now we've got now we've got salmon. Where is this taking us? And we're going to talk with a journalist, Tamar Haspel, in the second hour of the show. And we're going to be talking to Tamar about some of the things that she's been dealing with for a long time. She's been writing about food and science in National Geographic. She writes a column called Unearthed in Washington Post. Uh, she's part of starvingofftheland.com. She's a really interesting individual. So let's look forward to that. We wish Colleen Keel luck tonight, even though she doesn't really need it. You heard from her on the 96 take. We talked with her last week, and we're hoping to talk with her tomorrow. She will be on Wheel of Fortune tonight without actually being on Wheel of Fortune tonight. Because it's already been taped. She's just been sworn to secrecy as to what happens. But that show will air tonight. She will appear on Wheel of Fortune. Londoner now living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we wish her all the luck in the world. And we'll see what else we can get into today. Of course, it is Game 7 between the London Knights and the Guelph Storm. We're going to talk with Ryan Rupert later in the show about one of the most famous Game 7s in London Knights history, going back to 2013 when Bo Horvat scored with .1 seconds left. So we'll get all kinds of behind-the-scenes details on that from Ryan Rupert a little later on as we talk about Game 7s. You know, if, you, if you're not a sports fan, here's how you can appreciate a Game 7, truly. A Game 7 in sports is a lot like a job interview in life. Very similar feelings that exist, especially if it's a job that you either really, really want or a job that you really, really need. So picture that day of your job interview. You wake up feeling how? Nervous? Anxious? Absolutely. 
what are you wondering? Well, what's going to happen? When I walk in that room and I sit down, what's going to happen? What's it like? Are there going to be more people in the room than I expect? What are they going to ask me? You know, you've gone over in your mind and you've practiced what it is that you're going to say to try and promote yourself and answer questions properly. So you've gone over all that stuff and and you think you have some of it down, but you don't know. You have absolutely no idea. And that uncertainty brings on what? More anxiety, more nervousness. And then you finally get there and you know what? You get going in the job interview and it does one of two things. It either goes well for you or it doesn't go well for you and it's a bit of a fight to get through it. Very similar feeling, believe it or not, for anybody playing in a game seven. They know that this is their one chance. Just like that job interview, that's your one chance of getting that job. You may have to use that job interview to get invited to another one, but that's your one chance. You blow that, they're not going to invite you back. They're not going to offer you that job. Same thing in a game seven. It is one chance, and things are going to happen that don't quite go your way. Guaranteed. There's going to be a question in a job interview that you don't quite answer right, or you think, oh, I meant to say that differently. In a game seven, it's, oh, I meant to play that differently. I meant to do that differently. And it's about being able to get over that, get beyond that, and put everything aside. And that's the key to a job interview. Be prepared for it. Know stuff about the company. Kind of take yourself through some potential practice questions. That's all you're doing and practicing for a game seven in sports. And then you go in there, and the best thing you can do is take all that anxiety, all that nervousness, and you put it aside. And you do not think about it. And you just act as you. Be yourself. And that's what you ultimately have to do in a Game 7. Put everything aside and just do what you do. Be you. And typically, you'll give yourself a chance at, in a job interview, getting the job, in a Game 7, winning that Game 7. It's how sports mirrors life a lot of times. Dale Hunter has been in a few Game 7s as a head coach. The Knights have actually been in this situation four different times in their history in which they've won three games and then they've lost three games and then they've played a game seven and have come out on the right end of it. Happened in 1998, happened against the Sioux Greyhounds in the 2000s, and so they'll try and repeat that tonight. But Dale Hunter yesterday talked at practice about a game seven that he played in that today is actually the anniversary of. When he was a player playing with the Washington Capitals against the Philadelphia Flyers in 1998, it was actually April the 16th. This is the 31st anniversary of Dale Hunter scoring what you can probably picture if you're a hockey fan as being that very famous goal where Dale Hunter goes in on a breakaway, dekes Ron Hextall and scores, and then Hextall flops back into the net. Remember that? That was a series-winning goal in a Game 7. And yesterday, Dale Hunter talked about it and proved that he still remembers every single thing about that goal. I seen Larry Murphy getting it, and it was a heck of a pass up through the middle, and I split the D, and Peck stalls in net, and I made a D and went 5-0 on him. So you still remember them. Any overtime goal you get, you always remember, especially a Game 7 clincher like that, and it's... Uh, you know, it's uh, one of those games that you never forget. As a hockey player, you love the pressure of playing and the big moments, and that's what she's all about. Just like it's kind of like a Super Bowl game. This winner takes all, so it's one game, and and uh, compared to football, they, you you got to come up, raise your game up in the big games. And that's what you have to have. You have to have somebody who's willing to say, "Look, this is this happens. 
You know, job interviews, they take place all the time. And if you don't get the job, there'll be another opportunity. There'll be another one coming along. And for everybody playing today, you've got another opportunity. They'll play hockey again. There will be other opportunities. But one team is going to win tonight and move on. One team is not. One team's going to get that job. One team is not. Yesterday, we ended the show with an unanswered question, and I really apologize for this because I hate answering or leaving loose ends. And we totally did that yesterday on London Live when we found out that U.S. President Donald Trump was giving Tiger Woods a presidential honor. And so I'll answer the question of of what that honor is all about in just a moment, because thank you for all of the emails. Thanks to Rose. Thanks to Rob. Thanks to Rick. Thanks to uh, Marianne. Uh, We've got all kinds of answers to what that actually was. So I'll get to that in just a moment. And there are a few other things that we're going to get to before we get to fighting a fire in a church, courtesy of London Deputy Fire Chief Jack Burke. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Yesterday, we closed out the show, and it had just been announced that U.S. President Donald Trump was going to give a presidential Medal of Freedom to Tiger Woods. And immediately I went, wait a minute, is this a really big golf fan just being a really big golf fan? I hope not. Who is this medal going to usually? Is this tarnishing this particular honor? I mean, it's all nice that Tiger Woods won the Masters and everything. I'm a big sports fan. It was amazing to watch, but it's still golf. That's it. It's just a game. It's not life. We're not changing the world here with Tiger Woods winning the Masters. I hope this hasn't been tarnished. So thanks again to to Marianne. Thanks again to Rose, to Rob, for sending in the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom is awarded by the President of the United States for a specially meritorious contribution to, one, the security or national interests of the United States. Uh, Tiger Woods. Two, world peace. Uh, Tiger Woods. Or three, cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. Okay. It's awarded to individuals selected by the president or recommended to him by the Distinguished Civilian Service Awards Board. And you can look at a number of incredible people who have won this award. Colin Powell, Ellsworth Bunker. But you can also look and see that in the sports world, we have, and George W. Bush was big into this, but so was Barack Obama that this has been awarded to people that you would put into the class of Tiger Woods. And again, this is not what Tiger Woods has or has not done away from the golf course. So, for instance, Babe Ruth was awarded one by Donald Trump, but Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Willie Mays, Yogi Berra all awarded this particular presidential honor by Barack Obama. Billie Jean King, that was, that's one that you could see, though. Uh, George W. Bush, Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, he went golfers, too. So, not out of the question. So, as much as I, I took my hand and I hit my forehead and I went, oh, 
Is this just a golf fan being a golf fan? I hope not. Looks like it's not. So, well within the means of awarding that particular honor to Tiger Woods, as the president chose to do in the United States. Speaking of the United States, it's going to be interesting to continue to watch what is happening right now. We've got, we've got a couple of things. One being the city of London taking a look at declaring environmental issues an emergency and climate change an emergency. There are a lot of, a lot of I guess, not just municipalities, but there's a lot of push for this in a lot of different places. And the idea that we would declare it an emergency to try to get people to pay attention. Yesterday, we talked on the show about things changing gradually. So we're not going to change really quickly the way that we act. So the idea that we would still be acting the same way in 2030 or by 2050 when scientists say our world is going to be at a place in terms of climate change and global warming where we can't go back where we are going to see a rise in temperature, where we're going to see storms that instead of 5 and 10 millimeters of moisture falling, it's going to be more like 15 to 20 every time. Things like that, things that make it very difficult to maintain what we've been doing in life without, uh uh-oh, it's raining again. That means the sewers are going to overflow again. Oh, here we go. That means a tree is going to blow down in Victoria Park again. Oh, here we go. So we probably won't do enough in order to make changes, because we won't. Who's going to do it? But then all of a sudden you start to see, let's declare this an emergency. Let's, let's wait a minute here. Let's make sure that we do have a world collective for things. And we also have that happening with what is going on right now. Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland has basically vowed Canada's support for the Alliance for Multilateralism, during that G7 foreign ministers meeting in France. And the United States has not joined in, but now we've seen a number of individuals. And this, you know, this will address something like global warming. This, this kind of looks at some of the measures taken after the Second World War. But instead of looking and saying, okay, well, this is, this is kind of a war measures act or this is to prevent conflict like that. No, this is about everybody getting together and saying, okay, Not what's wrong with your country, not what's wrong with your little corner of the earth. What is wrong with this planet and how do we make sure that we are addressing that? Whether it is from a militaristic standpoint, whether it is from an environmental standpoint. I like this. I like that Canada has joined into this because you need a seat at that table. You really do. Now, will it give politicians the leverage that it takes to enact new taxes and new legislation to bring about taxes? I don't know. Sure. Maybe it will. More environmental taxes? Maybe. Yeah, well, if we want to keep our place at the table for the Alliance for Multilateralism, we've got to do this. Yeah, there's, there's a chance that it could do that. But I like that we are part of this Kind of from the get-go. We've, we've had a, a formation for a little while, but kind of from the get-go. This, this is a good thing in my mind. And one of the things that they're going to be looking at is what's happening in Venezuela, where you still have people starving, where you still have rule that is going on that is basically killing off citizens. In Venezuela, we can't, you can't have that. So you do need the ability to step in. And I know we've got the UN, and I know it's never a bad thing to kind of refresh stuff. And that's what this feels like. All right, we've got a minute before we go away to break. Marilyn, that is your minute. How are you? 
Oh, I'm not too bad, thank you. And I was just thrilled to pieces that Tiger Woods won the uh, Masters. Would you have given him a Presidential Medal of Honor and Medal of Freedom for doing that? Yes. Yeah, see? I I guess I don't mind it either. Well, good. As long as it's not tarnishing. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm talking to Marilyn. Right. Are you a recipient of a Presidential Medal of Freedom? No, but I haven't. I mean, this man is one of the greatest uh, uh, golfers ever, okay? Oh, absolutely. I'm not trying to diminish Tiger Woods. I was more concerned that awarding him that kind of medal would tarnish it for whoever had gone before him. I I needed to look in and make sure that other golfers had won it and other athletes had won it, and they had. That was my concern. Well, dear, nobody's perfect. He's made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. We all have. And I really like to see somebody make a great comeback. Well, we had one of the greatest comebacks going yesterday, putting him in with Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan, as Mike Wilbon had pointed out on Pardon the Interruption. So, Marilyn, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Bye, dear. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. We will talk about fighting fires in churches. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And we are also going to talk genetically modified foods on the show today. This is London Live. Next up, news. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Okay, just ran into a guy you know as Boss Brad. Brad Gibb, and first off, he didn't have his gritty T-shirt on. Sometimes he'll have a black gritty T-shirt, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, for big days. And it it looks like Brad's kind of changing up, because today's a big day around here. Game 7, London Knights, Guelph Storm, we want the Knights to win. By the way, Brad did tell me there are only a couple of hundred tickets left for tonight's game. So if you are planning to be there, it is Game 7. It starts at 7 o'clock. We'll have coverage starting at 6.30 with the pregame show to get you set. And you can get those tickets at 519-681-0800. You can drop by the Knights Armories, or you can go online right now to LondonKnights.com. But it got me thinking. The superstition of everything. If you're a sports fan, last night, for instance... You know, the idea that a sports fan will put on their favorite jersey, sit in the same spot on the couch. Do you, do you find that that happens? I, I ran into that this morning. I was in front of my closet, and I'm looking in, and I'm pulling out a shirt, and for the last three games, I've worn ties with green in them. Don't know why, just I, I had. And I don't usually remember what I wore for breakfast, or what I ate for breakfast. Uh, I, I wear my breakfast quite a bit, actually. Um, but... I did remember that I'd worn green tie, so I decided, no, I can't wear a green tie. No no green tie this time. So I pulled out a purple tie. Do you ever have that superstition stuff happen for you with anything? Do you? Is this a normal behavior? Because I know it impacts nothing for what is about to happen between the London Knights and the Guelph Storm tonight. It impacts nothing. Purple tie, no tie, steel tie, doesn't matter rope tie but i still i had to i couldn't wear a green tie today just like brad couldn't wear his gritty t-shirt because it hadn't worked before 
Is that a thing that you go through? If you have any good superstition stories, please pass them on to us. 519-643-2222. Or you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. There was a horrific loss to our world yesterday when the Notre Dame Cathedral burned in Paris, France. And in a moment, we are going to talk with Reverend Paul Millward, the rector of the Cathedral Church of St. Paul and the Dean of Huron. And we'll talk a little bit about that church, its significance, and then we'll talk about fighting fires in churches as we look back to a significant and terrible incident yesterday in Paris, France. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Thanks for being with us. Email from Kathy says, wear your lucky tie. Okay, I think this is a lucky tie. I don't, aren't all ties lucky? I don't know. A lot of people don't wear ties anymore. I like to consider ties lucky. This one feels good today. See what happens later on. Yesterday, we, of course, had a very terrible fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. But it gives us an opportunity to kind of look around at a couple of things in our own city. And one of those things is our own St. Paul's Cathedral. And the condition of St. Paul's Cathedral. And you probably know right now that there is a project that has been started called Project Jericho. And we're able to get an update on Project Jericho and talk a little bit about what the hope is for St. Paul's Cathedral in London going to the future. And joining us right now to help us out with that very thing happens to be the very reverend of the Cathedral Church of St. Paul, Dean of Huron as well, uh, Reverend Paul Millward, who joins us. Uh, Reverend Millward, may I call you Paul? Paul is what I'm most comfortable with. Thank okay. you, Okay. Well, I'm, I wanted to make sure that we gave you your full title. <laughs> My kids call me the kind of sort of like Reverend, but uh, Paul, is, Paul is what works best. <laughs> when you look back to yesterday, when, when you see a religious symbol like that burning, what was that moment like for you? Well, I think the line that we often use is there, but for the grace of God go I. And I think all, all of us uh, felt uh, a sense of, of loss and sadness for our brothers and sisters, certainly in the Catholic Church. Um, but around the world, Notre Dame is, is a historic symbol. It's certainly a faith and religious uh, symbol, and and it's it, we all fear uh, what they experienced yesterday. A number of uh, churches, even in, in the last few weeks uh, in Ontario and Canada, have experienced fires. And St. Paul's itself, um, the first St. Paul's, uh, which was built um, well, back in the early 1800s, it actually burnt to the ground. Uh, it opened in 1834, and in 1844 uh, suffered a fire that, that caused it to burn down, oddly enough, on Ash Wednesday. Really? Uh, and so two years later, uh, it was rebuilt. So the current St. Paul's, as it sits now at Richmond and Queen, is about 173 years old. But uh, uh, the earliest residents of London would have seen a similar, not to the, the scale of Notre Dame for sure, but uh, 
um, that's that's how our St. Paul's had its beginnings. Well, it is such a beautiful landmark in downtown London, such a, a beautiful building. When you look at the preservation of it, how much attention is spent to saying, okay, let's make sure that this is in good condition. Let's make sure that, that we do have this, you know, able to stand for hundreds of years to come. Well, it certainly uh, is is on our forefront always. Um, the challenge is that we're here to do ministry as well and trying to find the right balance of preserving buildings and, and our history and our story, um, but also having resources to reach out to those uh, around us. And that's uh, uh, always the challenge of, of, of balancing that. Uh, within the last two or three years, uh, there were some major architectural structural issues at St. Paul's. Uh, from which Project Jericho actually uh, was born, uh, we thought that there was simply some water damage uh, that we needed to tend to, and the more investigation uh, that was done, the more it was revealed that there were other things that needed to happen. And so uh, the cathedral space, the worship space, was closed for about six months uh, for the architectural repairs to be done, the structural repairs. And we've been back in it for almost two years now. There are some aesthetic things that still need to happen, but with a building of this age, um, we need to prioritize that. We have our St. Paul's social services um, that reaches out to those who need uh, either food bank or a hot meal, and they are on uh, only through stair access. And so at some point we are looking to uh, have elevator access so that we can be more accessible for the folks that we choose to serve. So. So it's a matter of priority uh, in terms of making sure that, that our building is as in good repair as it can be um, and aesthetically pleasing as a worship space, but uh, that it's also accessible for the needs of serving the community. Absolutely. The very Reverend Paul Millward joining us from the Cathedral Church of St. Paul on Richmond in London. So would that be an offshoot of Project Jericho as well? Uh, well, Project Jericho was really for the the uh, the structural work and the the follow up aesthetic work, um, which we're probably going to look to merge into. Um, we also, at the same time, as, as discovered the issues with um, the structure, we were already running a campaign called Renew that was focused on the accessibility of the building. So, what we're looking to do is merge both of them now that we're back. Uh, getting back on our feet again in lots of ways um, so that we can prioritize in terms of what we think is the most important and then work forward from from that point. Um, but ever and always, like I say, it was an accident in terms of what happened at Notre Dame yesterday. And, and we know, you know we, we constantly are aware of if there are electrical concerns or heating concerns that, uh, that those get immediate attention. Absolutely. So with the merging of, of Project Jericho and then taking a look at, at perhaps being able to put in an elevator, is there money that you can look at that comes from, from different resources, or is this all just from parishioners and, and from fundraising? It's really a combination. Um, certainly fundraising um, factors into it, and our own parishioners, obviously. Um, but there are, are um, foundations that we can look to access uh, both within the Anglican Church and, and beyond. Uh, and because of the age and, and historicity of the building, um, we're always looking for opportunities uh, uh, for heritage kinds of, of um, funding. So it's, there's a variety of sources 
um, that we will be looking to access to continue to, to care for St. Paul's. Well, we appreciate you updating us on, certainly on Project Jericho, but certainly on some of the things that you're looking to do going toward the future at, uh, again, the beautiful St. Paul's Cathedral. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, having me on this afternoon. Take care, Paul. Okay, God bless. Okay, bye-bye. That is the very Reverend Paul Millward, who is the rector at the Cathedral Church of St. Paul, also the Dean of Huron, updating us on one of our own landmark churches. We will take a break. Up next... When you look at fighting a fire in a building like that, with a ceiling that high, or a building like Notre Dame, or like any of the other churches anyone has in any of their cities, it's not an easy thing to do. We'll look at this from a firefighting perspective next. London Deputy Fire Chief Jack Burt is due to join us on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We were all stricken by the images yesterday of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France, and the fire that was engulfing a good portion of it. Imagine being someone who was dispatched to go and try and fight that fire, or fight a fire in a building similar to that. You know, we just spoke with uh, someone who makes it their job to ensure the safety and that structures within the St. Paul's Cathedral on Richmond in London are in good stead and that the electrical is checked on a regular basis. Reverend Paul Mildred pointed that out to us. Right now, let's talk about fighting fires in buildings like that. How do you even go about it? Joining us, Deputy Chief Jack Burt with London Fire and also Deputy Chief Richard Hayes. Chiefs, welcome to the program. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Mike. Where do you begin when you are dispatched to what is maybe not considered to be a run-of-the-mill-sized building like a church? Well, first off, we got to look at sources. It's one of the tricky things is to try to figure out how people you're going to seem like that. So, take us take us through the the alarm sounds. You find out where you're going, and and how do you strategize? Well, the hope is that we would get early notification um, with the alarm systems that we have buildings. Um, we hope to get there quickly and get on the seat of the fire as quickly as possible, and then bring resources to bear that are needed in order to uh, bring about successful extinguishment. All right, we're having a, a little bit of trouble with with your phone right now, Deputy Chief Burt, so we'll uh, we'll try one more question. We may have to, to postpone this uh, a little bit, perhaps even to tomorrow. It, when when you look at, at that notification, like you said, it, it can come. You hope to get information. When you're dealing with a building like a church, what's the, the primary thing that you're looking to do? Well, obviously, the, the main job we want to do is extinguish the fire and make sure nobody gets hurt. Uh, yesterday, there was one firefighter that was seriously injured, and we're hoping for a safe recovery for that firefighter. Okay, thanks. Your phone is, is working much better now. So take us through then, you know, the obviously that's that's the end goal. When you're strategizing and in, in trying to attack a fire that is in a, a very high point, if somebody even has high ceilings in their home, what tends to happen there? 
Well, you can see from the pictures yesterday that um, the aerial ladders were set up and they weren't at the top of that roof. So it was very difficult to fight that fire. Um, they were lobbing water up into the roof structure to try to put it out. So there's challenges associated with that. And a massive amount of water is needed in order to fight that fire. And how do you go about getting extra water? I mean, if if a church is not necessarily located right near all kinds of fire hydrants, uh, what do you do? Well, we'd go into a tanker shuttle situation. We would do what we need to do to get the water to the scene. Deputy Chief Hayes, when Deputy Chief Bird is talking about finding that, that source, how difficult is that? Well, we've done a lot of uh, pre-planning. We know where the water sources are. We can... Uh, quickly bring um, additional resources from our neighbors if need be. And so um, we can bring it to bear fairly quickly in order to mitigate uh, any major fires uh, within the city for sure. And then when you're talking about finding the source of the fire on scene, how difficult is it to find that? Well, we have technology that is our help. But just in just looking at a structure um, as we first arrive on scene, it's not difficult for us to actually find um, where the fire is expected to be. And then using thermal imaging cameras, once we gain entry, if it's tenable to do so, we can then quickly find the seat of the fire. So would those cameras go on in, in absolutely every fire that you fight? That's correct. Yes, we use them all the time. And not just for fires, but for, for looking for people and, you know, whatever uh, anything that really has a heat source, we can find it. And what are you looking for in terms of, of the source of the fire? The hottest point? Would it be a hottest point? That's correct. And so the seat of the fire, where the fire starts, is generally uh, the hottest point. Um, and so we would try to uh, direct our resources towards that and then um, stop the fire from growing. We are talking about fighting a fire in a building like a church. Deputy Chief Richard Hayes is with us, Deputy Chief Jack Burt. If, Deputy Chief Hayes, if you're able to get and control that, that hottest point, that initial point, what does that mean in terms of fighting a fire? Does that make it a lot easier to fight, or does it depend on what's happened since that initial source began to burn? Well, if you can get to the seat and extinguish the seat, then that's really the engine of the fire. And so um, from any fires, the um, incomplete combustion or smoke and gases that come from it, so if we can stop that smoke and gas, then that stops the spread of fire. And so getting onto that uh, seat of the fire uh, certainly does, you know, take the foot off the accelerator, so to speak. We know how much training goes into being a firefighter. Is there specialized training for different types of buildings these days? Oh, we may we may have lost Deputy Chief Hayes and Deputy Chief Burt. Well, we thank them for everything this afternoon. Gentlemen, if you can hear us right now, thank you so much for your expertise. Thanks for having us on the show. Okay, really appreciate it. Cheers. Deputy Chief Jack Burt, Deputy Chief Richard Hayes, talking about fighting fires in buildings like churches or certainly in in just going into a building. You look at how technology changes things. How many people knew that... When you walk in the building, that thermal imaging goes on and instantly they are able to determine 
where somebody might be, where that hottest point of the fire might be, and then getting to that, getting that extinguished, makes all the difference in the world. So we thank them for taking some time out for us. Coming up, we're going to be talking about genetically modified foods. We're going to talk with the journalist, Tamar Haspel, and Tamar writes a column called Unearthed for the Washington Post. She is a contributor to National Geographic. You can find her at starvingofftheland.com. And we're going to talk about some of the things that she has unearthed. She's been writing about food and science for a long, long time. And food and science have been coming together for a long, long time. But as we go through to a future where you have the ability to say, you know, we can make that tomato better. You know, we can make that fish better. What are the side effects on this? What are the concerns? What are the questions we should actually be asking as we pick up something that is a GMO product? We have news coming up next, then we'll deal with that. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. GMO GMF There are two things that we've been hearing for a while. Genetically modified food, genetically modified organism. We have the power to do a lot of stuff. Question is, should we? The second question is, what's it going to do to us if we consume things like that? A lot of scientists will say, for the most part, not much. But is there always a chance that something might happen? You are what you eat? There's a reason we don't eat seagulls. You know why we don't eat seagulls? They taste like trash. Because that's what they eat. They eat garbage. Oh, they eat french fries. Not always. No, they pick through garbage. They're not a tasty bird. And that's why we don't eat seagulls. So if you are what you eat, then... What do we know about genetically modified organisms, genetically modified foods? We have the luxury of being able to speak with someone who knows a lot about them. She is a journalist, and she writes a column called Unearthed for the Washington Post. She's a contributor to National Geographic. You can find her at starvingofftheland.com. Tamar Haspel is going to join us in just a moment. But one of the reasons why we're looking at this in depth right now is the fact that We had Environment Canada give the big thumbs up to genetically modified salmon that have been raised in Prince Edward Island. And these have, I guess, been altered so that they can come to maturity more quickly. The idea is that if they can produce salmon more quickly, then the cost can go down. And who doesn't like a nice piece of salmon? You know the trick to buying salmon in the grocery store. It's waiting until it's approaching that date to when they cannot sell it and you get the 30% off slapped right on there. 50% off. You always look at it and go, hmm, 50% off sounds really good. And then that Homer Simpson sketch comes up in your head, doesn't it? Where cheap meat. Oh, yeah. Where does that take him? Uh, Takes him to the hospital. Well, we'll have to go back and play that if... If you haven't heard the Homer Simpson sketch about cheap meat, buying it from the Quickie Mart. But that's that's beside the point. We want to look at actual things. This is not a land of four-fingered yellow individuals. This is our country. 
This is what we have in our grocery stores. And if Environment Canada has given the thumbs up to putting salmon onto shelves, and if in fact it is cheaper, it's going to draw me in. So what do we need to know about GMOs and GMFs in 2019? Tamar Haspel, again, a journalist who writes Unearthed for the Washington Post, who's a contributor to National Geographic, who you can find at starvingofftheland.com, joins us right now on London Live. Tamar, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Let's look at genetically modified. You've done a lot of research and a lot of writing on food and science. Um, when you hear the term genetically modified, are you okay with it? Are you hesitant? Do you, do you kind of raise a warning flag for people? What do you do? Here's the thing. I think that whenever anybody asks anybody, including me, what do you think about GMOs, the answer should always be which one, because Genetic modification is a tool, and so if I have a hammer, I can help my neighbor fix his roof or I can kill his dog. So a tool is what you make of it. And, you know, everybody's hanging their hat on the GMO that allows farmers to use more glyphosate, and that makes a lot of people angry, and it has some real downsides. But let's move on beyond that and talk about some of the things that GMOs have done that are way better. And in this case, if we can raise the salmon with fewer resources, lower environmental impact, and maybe a lower price tag, that's probably a good thing. Now, that's a great distinction. So when we do look at salmon, what we do know about this, at least, is that someone, a company, has been able to take something from the Chinook salmon, and that then is is somehow modified, and, and is it put in? Do you know? Is it put into other types of yeah, salmon? Yeah, they're, they're taking two different genes from fish. One is an ocean pout, if memory serves me, and the other is, I think, another kind of salmon. Um, but basically what they've done is change the makeup of the salmon so that it grows year-round, so it doesn't stop growing at one point in the year, which a lot of salmon do because of the, the, the life cycle when they're out in the wild. And so essentially, last I looked, they raised the salmon to maturity on 80 or 90 percent of the feed that it would take to, t- to, to get a slower-growing salmon to do that. And that's the win. And, you know, as far as human safety, which is very important, and we do need oversight of these things, but, but this has been looked at by agencies in the U.S. and in Canada, and they've all declared it safe to consume. And we're not talking about somebody who's pumping these salmon with steroids along with combining the genetic material? That this, this just is the genetic material? This has nothing to do with extra drugs to make them extra big, extra fast? No, this is actually altering their genetic makeup. Now, I mean, you can take any fish and raise it in a way where you add things to its environment, and if I knew more about raising fish, I could probably be more specific, but that's (laughs) not what this is about. This is about changing the genetic makeup of the fish. Okay. And when you hear people object to things like that, what typically do they talk about? Well, here's the thing. GMOs have become this flashpoint in the conversations we're having about food. And in some ways, the well is poisoned. So as soon as you say the word GMO, people who are on one side of this divide, let's call it the side that's looking at small farms, organic farms, uh, diversification, environmental impact, human health, um, they say, oh, this is a bad thing. And again, partly because of the, the Roundup issue. But then the people on the big side are, are 
have the same reaction in the other direction. They look at the ways that GMOs have, have improved agriculture, and there are lots of those, and maybe they lose sight of the fact that, okay, a lot of these GMOs are being put to use in a system that, you know, grows hundreds of millions of acres of corn and soy that go into, you know, junk food and, and cars and pigs. Um, and so there are legitimate arguments on, on either side, but it, GMOs have been so polarized that it's almost impossible to have a constructive conversation about them. And that's almost unfortunate. Oh, it's very unfortunate. Do we change it? Can we change it? I'm doing my level best, Mike, <laughs> but it's not working. And, you know, every time I talk about this on social media, just about everybody divides into their predictable camps. And, you know, I, I understand why. These are important issues. And there, there are some, you know, serious disagreements about doctrine and where our food supply should go. But GMOs make that discussion harder, not easier. And it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? I don't know. I, you know, you show me something that makes it easier, and hey, you should write my column. <laughs> Tamar Aspel joining us. Journalist who you can read in the Washington Post. She writes a column called Unearthed. Uh, National Geographic contributor. You can find her at starvingofftheland.com. We'll talk about that in just a little bit as well. But in terms of, of the concerns, the fears that, that you hear, is it the playing God component that people tend not to like, or is it the what might happen to me if I eat this component? I think you've put your, your finger on two of the important ones. It feels really unnatural to people, the idea that people, humans, can actually determine the genetic makeup of things. Um, and, and that ties into their fear of, of eating it and what happens to them when they eat it. Now, I think that the biggest implications that genetic modification has out in the world isn't human health and it isn't playing God. It's what's the environmental impact of this. Because when you make a big change to something, it's hard to foresee what could happen. And, and the problems that we've had, specifically, you know, herbicide-tolerant weeds, have been something that, of course, some people did foresee, but lots of people did not. And that understandably makes people balk. But if you look at the salmon, I mean, these are going to be raised in tanks in places that are, that are at, at least a reasonable distance away from any place where salmon could swim. And so we're not talking so much about environmental impact because they will be contained. Do you find in your research and in your writing that people get as concerned about things like chicken farms or turkey farms, which we do see birds, you know, in some cases we have seen birds injected with steroids, grown really big, really fast to make all those delicious chicken wings everybody likes to enjoy. Do they get as, as you know, is that as polarizing a topic as maybe this one? Uh, it's polarizing. It's also confusing because poultry does not get steroids in this country. Okay. Um, and they don't get hormones either. And this is, again, but these things take root because steroids are an issue in other forms of agriculture. And so they just get... It gets muddied as soon as people's emotions get involved. And, but, yeah, I think you're right. The GMOs have been the biggest flashpoint. And although there is concern about how turkeys and chickens are raised in this, in, in this industrialized system, I don't think it's reached the same level as the concern about GMOs. For some reason, that really got people where they live. In the United States, can you raise chickens and turkeys that way? 
Uh, no, you're, you don't use st- steroids and hormones are prohibited. Then I'm I'm happy you. Yeah, I'm happy you've cleared that up because I I thought for sure I'd seen a documentary talking about that happening. No, not in the U.S. Okay, good, good. Let's look a, a little bit at, at some of the other things that maybe we need to appreciate going forward with with genetically modified organisms with GMOs. Uh, what exactly do you see as being the next frontier in all of this? Is it just little bits like the salmon in PEI and and hey, here's a, a tomato that I've grown that does this and contains this? Is it just little bits kind of coming forward and and eventually we're we're going to have a lot of these bits together, or is there another direction this could go? I actually think the next frontier is not going to happen in our backyard at all. I think that the most promise that genetic modification shows is for some of the poorest of the poor to be able to raise crops that are resistant to to disease or pests. So in Bangladesh, they have uh, BT eggplant, um, and it has enabled farmers to increase their crop, increase their profitability, and in some cases send their kids to school. If we can do that for other staple crops in places where there is still a lot of food insecurity, that's a win. If we can increase the nutritional content of staple crops like cassava, that's a win. And I actually think that those are the applications that I certainly care most about. And I think sometimes they don't get enough play because, like, it's way more fun to hate Monsanto. <laughs> we're talking with Tamara Haspel, journalist, and we're talking about GMOs, genetically modified organisms, or GMFs, genetically modified foods. Uh, Tamara writes, or unearthed for the Washington Post, and is a contributor to the National Geographic. And also, before we let you go, you have to tell us about starvingofftheland.com and that project you've been a part of. Yeah, I've been a part of it for a long time, and, and, and the blog is up, although I, I kind of stopped writing about it a, uh, a year or so ago because I had to switch my focus. But my husband and I live on uh, two acres on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and we have experimented with just about every kind of food production you can imagine. We've had livestock. We keep laying hens. We've had pigs and turkeys and ducks and bees and fruit trees and gardens, and we hunt and we fish, and we've made our own sea salt. And basically, I, I want to stay connected to the idea that food has to come from someplace. And so we do that for our personal consumption. We also have a commercial oyster farm. And I think actually raising a crop for money helps me understand the concerns of, of farmers out there and helps me talk to them and, and, and informs the work that I do. And, you know, I, I think if you're going to talk about eating meat, it helps to have killed something. Um and so, yeah, I try, I try and stay connected to just about every aspect of food production. Are you, as a last question, are, are you really concerned? Maybe I could take a, a temperature here. We always hear that our biggest crisis coming is going to be feeding our world. It already has been. I mean, you can look at so many countries that struggle with it right now. But, I mean, on an even grander scale, how big a concern do you think that really is globally? I think it's going to be really big in a couple of decades. I think right now we're we're uh, producing a whole lot of food, and if we get better at distributing it, we don't have any immediate threats of of starvation in most parts of the world. But as the population grows and the climate continues to change, that could change. There are days when you know I'm kind of glad I'm 56 because this this is going to be a real issue, if not in my lifetime certainly in my kids. Well, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for all the expertise. Please keep up the great work. Thanks, Mike.
Take care. Bye-bye. That's Tamar Hospital. Journalist on genetically modified organisms, genetically modified food. She's done a lot of research, a lot of studying. And look at what she says. And, and you know, this this is a big concern about a lot of things anymore. Because it's really easy to have a knee-jerk reaction. Really easy. How do you feel about this? I'll tell you how I feel about that. I read a headline. Look at what I thought. I thought for sure we have been seeing steroids pumped into birds. Nope. Nope. I thought for sure. Nope. So... When we look at at having to deal with something that is as polarizing as GMOs, saying, well, wait a minute, everybody's going to pick their side. Well, you shouldn't play God. Well, I don't want to eat that because of this. Uh, This is dangerous. Everybody's got their side. How do we come together and realize how we make these things work? Because ultimately, they're going to help us. You know, being able to modify foods, being able to create resistant crops that are resistant to whether it is some kind of insect, whether it is to a lack of moisture, you name it, that is going to be big. And we've got to keep feeding ourselves and they're not going to be making Twinkies forever. 519-643-2222. Bob, you wanted to weigh in on this. Yeah, Mike, uh... Interesting uh, conversation. Have you ever uh, watched a documentary called uh, The World According to Monsanto? No. Or Manufactured Landscapes? Well, this was put out years ago, and there was an investigative documentary that was made. And what they were finding out was company Monsanto was going around and sabotaging um, uh, crops in the Midwest United States and Mexico, now Mexico is where obviously corn came from, and there was 200, uh, I guess, native strains there. And the farmers there started finding that they were, they were being contaminated with these other strains. They couldn't figure it out. Well, they traced it down to Monsanto, and some personnel would just be going around and seeding these areas and sort of, you know, interfering with these uh, traditional strains of corn. So what it came down to is Monsanto is trying to genetically modify things and patent it so they actually own the food source. So if you as a farmer use their grain without a license, they'll come in and and they'll sue your behind off. Now, there is a farmer in the Midwest who went through this. They uh, were notified by Monsanto that they had some investigators go out and notice that their their strains of corn and he hadn't purchased a license. And they were literally trying to sue this guy for everything he owned. And as well, what they were doing is they were going around and they were buying up what they call these seed extractors, which uh, maintains the uh, traditional uh, strains of, of, um, of seed that farmers, you know, have been planting forever. Okay. And there's only one or two, I think, known in the United States, because they were buying them and they were destroying them. So I guess the worry would be when big business, big corporations, they want to start owning everything, so they have you more or less held hostage for your food source. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I used to go in uh, like hardware stores and stuff, you know, when I was growing up. And you used to see these racks of seeds all the time for your garden, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I and I make a note of looking for this. Like I go on the TSC or something, and I'm looking to put some stuff in the garden. And I'm like, don't you sell a package of seeds anymore? And they're like, no, we don't. So you see all this stuff is kind of disappearing. And it's being kind of uh, controlled in the hands of these big corporations who 
you know, it's pointing toward the direction of their, like I say, they're trying to control a food source and hold people literally in farmers hostage to use their product and, play, and pay this fee. So it's only their modified genetic strains that are being grown and feeding the world. So it's something we should be concerned about and maybe look into. Well, you know what, there have been other documentaries, yeah, that have looked into the big business of farming. And now, let's face it, you can't, you and I can't sit here and say, you know, here's what I'd like to do for the rest of my life as, as a career. I'd like to be a farmer. You can't, and it is owned a lot by big farmers, and as farmers are selling their farms as they get older, they are being bought up in some cases, not in every case, a lot of times it gets passed through the family, but in some cases by big farm corporations. You're right, you know, I I know some farmers out where I live, and one particular family owns a thousand acres, and this is going back years now, and I was having a discussion on, you know, how they're running their farms. Well, they're literally, like, they're, they just, like, lease their land out to these corporations. And they tell them what they have to plant, when they have to plant it, and when they have to take it off the fields. So these farmers are in the control of these big companies. And you would think you have a 1,000 acres, you can plant what you want. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. And it's kind of concerning to me where you can't even utilize your own land as a farmer the way you see fit. And you can't sell it to who you feel you want to sell it to. It's all controlled. So yeah, it's something to take a look at. Definitely. But on, on the other side of things, uh, I think the uh, Boston Baby Bears showed up again <laughs> in Toronto. I mean, they, the Baby Bears played game one, and then and the real Bruins came out in game two. And then they sent the Baby Bear team to Toronto. So I'm a little disappointed with that, Mike. We'll see what happens. Mitch Marner was blocking shots. When you get oh. Mitch Marner blocking shots like that, he's he's a guy who knows how to win series all by himself. You watch. Thanks for the yeah. time, Bob, and uh, we'll talk soon. Hey, good uh, good uh, <laughs> luck on that game tonight, eh? Thank you. I'll be- oh. Sorry, Bob. Uh, Bob will be tuning in. Thank you for doing that. It is the Knights and the Guelph Storm. Got to take a quick break. We are running out of time for this half hour, but we'll return and let you know what's still ahead on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up tonight, a Londoner on Wheel of Fortune. We'll give you details on that if you don't know the story. Ryan Rupert is going to join us, former London Knight, and he'll take us behind the scenes of a Game 7. What's the dressing room like anyway? Is it just like any other day? Is it a little different? What's the bench like? And what was it like in 2013, back when one of the most famous Game 7 goals in Knights history was scored, when Bo Horvat scored? He'll take us to that, too. Lots to come. London Live continues after news with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Ryan Rupert, X-Night, comes up in just a few minutes. We'll talk about life behind the scenes heading into a Game 7. He's played in some pretty serious games in winner-take-all situations. Did it in the Memorial Cup Final. And he will talk to us about what it's like to go into a Game 7, in his case, in a championship series. Tonight there is no championship on the line, but... There is a berth in the Western Conference Finals on the line against the Saginaw Spirit. The London Knights and the Guelph Storm meet in game number seven. There are still a couple of tickets available for the game. They're now down under 200. Let's get that place sold out. And if you are headed to the game, you realize you have a job tonight. You realize how much the crowd can make a difference, right? You know how Knights players always say, hey, we've got the best fans in the world. Well, tonight's that night that you've got to go out and make that difference. You're dealing with teenagers who ride waves of emotion, and there will be waves to ride. 
They may come out and score the first goal. That'd be a great big wave, great big high. Or they may come out and get scored on first. That'd be a great big low. And having that home ice advantage allows that crowd to, should Guelph score the first goal, start up a chant of go Knights go. Make all kinds of noise at opportune times in the game. That has to happen. This is not a game tonight for Knights fans to sit back and play what we always play in Canada. You realize Canadian fans and fans in a lot of other parts of the world are very, very different. We are very analytical for the most part. You will see people sitting back going, now you see what happened there. See, the defenseman came this way, and they'll talk to their neighbors about this. No, 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 no. This is a time to paint your head. This is a time to put on your greenest of green and then head to Budweiser Gardens. This is not a time to say, you know, if he had started backing up a half step sooner, that play would... No, 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 no. Analyze something else. You know, save that for the preseason. Tonight is a night to make noise. Save it for the next series if you can. Tonight is a night to make noise and be a crowd that exacts influence on the game. That's what needs to happen tonight at Budweiser Gardens. While that is going on, guess what? Colleen Keel, right as the night's game gets going, and you can hear it on 980 CFPL. We'll have the pregame show at 6.30, and we'll take you through all kinds of things. Colleen Keel, who lived in London, is going to be appearing on Wheel of Fortune. She already knows what happened. She couldn't tell us when we spoke to her last week. We'll try and talk with her tomorrow to discuss what did take place on Wheel of Fortune. But Colleen did talk to us last week about what one has to go through to get onto Wheel of Fortune. There's a couple of options. So as a U.S. resident, you can either submit a one-minute video or you can attend one of their um, little wheelmobile events, right, the big yellow bus that travels across America. And I was watching the show one afternoon, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in the U.S. now. I can totally apply to be on Wheel of Fortune. And I sent in a one-minute audition video. <laughs> okay, and uh, we are going to be able to hear a little bit of that audition video in a little bit, but when you go looking to put together a, a Wheel of Fortune audition video, what are you trying to show off? You're very good at buying vowels? What, what are you trying to show? Absolutely. No, I just, I'm a bit of a word person, kind of crazy person as far as that goes. It was um, just kind of showcased how clear and concise you can be and just kind of, you know, create that energy, which is obviously what I have. And when they see all these videos or wheelmobile people, they actually see over a million people's videos and auditions a year. Come on. So wait a minute. When they say you've got a one in a million chance, just for argument's sake, that's kind of what this is like. It is. So (laughs) I got an email saying they received my video and they wanted to see me again. I'm like, what? So I went to Indianapolis and um, we, there was about 65 other contestants from surrounding states and we played the game and we had a five minute test, which was ridiculously hard. And um, we were told that we would find out within two weeks if we were going to be a future Wheel of Fortune contestant. And I didn't hear anything in two weeks. And my mother is like, what is wrong with these people? Um, But anyway, I ended up getting a letter in the mail five weeks later stating that I was going to be one of 600 people chosen in a year to appear on the Wheel of Fortune. So that 
time that, hey, here's a letter saying you're going to be one of 600 people to appear. That time, that night, is tonight. Colleen Keel will be on Wheel of Fortune. And again, we'll do our best to catch up with Colleen tomorrow and find out just what did take place. She had been living in London, did a lot of great work with Pillar Nonprofit, and then ended up moving to the United States with her husband, getting married, and that allowed her the opportunity to go on Wheel of Fortune. Some game shows you can just be on. Price is right, you can just be on that. Wheel of Fortune, I think there are different regulations, and uh, being married to an American helps. So, Colleen Keel on Wheel of Fortune this evening. Next up, we will continue to talk Game 7, the London Knights and the Guelph Storm. Ryan Rupert, former London Knight, will join us. He'll talk about what Game 7 is like in the dressing room, what it's like on the bench, and he will relive one of the most famous Game 7 moments in all of London Knights history as he talks about what happened in 2013 when the London Knights actually won an OHL championship in a Game 7 on a goal that was scored with .1 seconds left by Bo Horvat, Rodney's own. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Under 200 tickets remaining for Game 7 tonight. London Knights, Guelph Storm. We have coverage beginning at 6.30. You'll hear from some of the people involved. We'll break down what's happened in the series so far. It's been a weird one. Knights won the first three games. Guelph has won the next three games. This has happened before. And so now the London Knights go looking to win a final game. Guelph goes looking to win a fourth consecutive game between the teams. This will be the last game between the teams this year, period. Cannot change. That's neither one or, you know, both of them cannot make it through to the Memorial Cup. There's nothing crazy like that that can happen. This is it. This is the last one. So what is a Game 7 truly like? Well, let's get some insight on that from somebody who has played in a great big one, perhaps the most famous Game 7 in London Knights history going back to 2013 when the Knights won an OHL championship. Ryan Rupert joins us, spent this year with the Indy Fuel, played a little bit in England. We'll have to talk about that. Ryan, thanks for being here. Let's start with this. Does a dressing room feel different for a Game 7 than it does for, say, a regular old playoff game? I think there's a little more tension uh, just throughout the build-up because everybody knows how big the game is. But besides that, you just try to treat it like another game and uh, try to go out there with all the excitement and uh, build off that uh, crowd noise. And, uh, um, yeah, just go in there. And uh, you never know how many Game 7s you're going to play in. and uh, You just want to live up to the moment and uh, go have fun. How hard is it to treat it like any other game? Do you need guys in the room who are going to just make it seem like any other day, cracking jokes, things like that? Yeah, I think uh, those locker room guys make it easy. Uh, they're going to be uh, pulling jokes and uh, being themselves. So if they keep up that, I mean, anybody's got to go out there and play the way they've played the whole year and the whole playoffs. And I think if they go out there, stick to their systems and uh, play with uh, excitement and uh, build off the energy, I think uh, they'll have no problem. In any game, things are going to go your way, and there are things that are not going to go your way. When things don't go your way, what do you have to do as a player to, to not let that snowball? Yeah, I'd say that's one of my biggest weaknesses. I get uh, pretty worked up, but um, I think you just got to let go and just keep working and uh, play even harder and try that much harder to get out of that slump and get out of that uh, curse that you think the, the refs or whatever is the issue, and uh Everybody knows if the harder you work, the quicker you get out of it. So if they're ever down, you just got to put your nose down and go to the net. 
Is it possible to believe in a game that things are against you when you when you look and you see either a missed call or a penalty and you say, oh, you know, they want the other team to win? Does that kind of go through your mind ever? Uh, not really, but, but if it happens. You just, uh, just keep working hard, like I said. But thinking of Game 7, the ref knows what's on the line and he's going to put the whistle away. And I, I think you'll see uh, not a lot of penalty minutes and just uh, let him play 5-5. Five and five. Ryan Rupert joining us as we talk about playing in a Game 7. Now let's turn to one of the most famous Game 7s in London Knights history, the one that you played in 2013 with the Barry Colts. What do you remember from before that game? Anything? Honestly, I don't really remember before the game just because uh, the how the game went itself. So I think everybody who remembers that game just remembers the last uh, second when both scored in that long long uh, period waiting when the refs were over at the game clock looking at if it went in or not. And I think that's the biggest thing that stands up for myself. What was going on on the Knights bench when you were waiting through that? The crowd is chanting, goal, goal, goal. And you guys are over on the bench. Was anybody saying anything? Yeah, I think uh, guys are just asking Bo if he went in. And Bo was pretty confident. He was right there, obviously. And he's seen the puck stand up and cross the red line, but obviously it was tight. And uh, just on the bench, uh, just sitting there tight, nervous, anxious about what the ref was going to call. But the way that Bo described it, we were pretty confident and uh, stress-free. And then Kendrick Nicholson, the referee, did a great job of kind of just kind of cultivating the drama in all of this where he slowly puts on his helmet, slowly does up the chin strap. Can you still see that image in your head? Oh, I just sitting on the bench and it seemed like 10 minutes or so. And then you're just listening to the crowd saying, goal, goal, goal. And then he finally came in, uh, dropped his arm down like the goal sign. And obviously guys were throwing their sticks and helmets, but there was still 0.1 seconds left. We had to take a face off, but, um, after that moment, we knew uh, we won the championship and we were going to the Memorial Cup. Amazing. Ryan Rupert joining us as we talk about Game 7s and the ability to just put everything aside and try and treat it like any other day. One of the hardest things that you can ever do in life is treat a day that definitely isn't like any other day, just like any other day. Ryan, let's talk about this year for you. Back with the Indy Fuel, you'd spent some time in England. Give us a sense of what's happening in your hockey career. Yeah, um, Matt and I started out in England, but uh, fortunately we kind of didn't like the way it was going, so we came back to uh, Indy here, and uh, we didn't make playoffs. We were one win short, but uh, personally uh, I had a pretty good uh, season, led the team in scoring this year, and had my most productive season in pro, so I had a, I personally had a great season, and I, Matt, likewise, he was another 20-goal scorer. So personally, Matt and I had a season uh, on the positive side. So what happens now when you are a professional player when a year like that comes to an end? Do you know immediately what's happening going forward, or is there still some question? No, there's uh, lots of questions. Our coach just got let go here, so Andy's looking for a new coach. And uh, personally, though, you just go in the offseason, see what kind of offers you get and what you want to do with your career, and then you just go from there and uh, just analyze what's best for yourself. Kind of like prepping for a Game 7. Don't think about it too much, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Ryan, it's always great catching up with you. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for taking us through what a Game 7 is like behind the scenes and certainly what one of the most famous ones in Knights history was like. All the best. All right, thanks for having me. Ryan Rupert.
Former London Knight, now finishing up another year with the Indy Fuel of the ECHL. You need people who are going to make today normal. If you talk with anybody who comes through a big moment, a big game, whatever it is, you've got to find a way to make it feel normal. You've got to find somebody who will crack those jokes or in a team setting. You don't want everybody who's normally, you know, loose and and having fun. You don't want them to all of a sudden go quiet. That's what you don't want. You've got to find a way to say, yeah, forget everything. Alex Formanton of the Knights said it yesterday. Forget everything. We can't do anything about the fact that the Guelph Storm have won three games in a row. Can't. Comes down to one game. Dale Hunter said it's like a Super Bowl. People go through it every year. Football, they don't mess around with these seven-game series. You just have one game, winner take all. So that's what it's like. That's what it's come down to. You can still get tickets. Just a couple left. We'll have the game for you. And if you're headed to the game, again, you've got a job to do. This is not sit back and go, well, you know, if he'd had his stick on the other side. Don't. No. Yelling. Yelling. Noisy. Chanting. All of those things. Save your analysis for another day. Do not sit back and analyze. Be a home ice difference in Budweiser Gardens. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Email that's come in from Alex at Mike at 980 CFPL. I know you've been talking on and off about Game 7 between the Knights and the Storm. You haven't said who you think is going to win. Okay. I'm not going to say who I think is going to win. I've been through enough of these things to know you can't predict. I don't bet on sports. I don't I don't make predictions like that because you have no idea. You have no idea. You know who's going to win? Comes down to one word. Execute. You get a chance. If you put it in the net, you got a good chance of winning. That's And as stupid as it sounds, sports as a whole are stupid. They really are. I love sports. I love watching sports. I love following sports. But overall, it's it's pretty simplistic. If you, in this case, put more pucks into the other team's net and they keep them out of their own, or you keep them out of yours, uh, you'll probably win. It's just how you do that. And it does come down to executing. There will be people tonight who miss nets. There are people playing on teams already this year that are still thinking about one moment from one game. There's a guy playing for the Kamloops Blazers, and I'm not sure what his name is. I don't even want to center him out, so I'm glad I don't remember his name. He had a chance to tie a game in the first-round series that they were playing, and he missed the net. And he would have tied the game, and it would have sent a game to overtime, and who knows, they could still be playing. And he missed the net. And he's going to be seeing that. Absolutely. When teams miss out on something by just a little bit, players for the rest of the summer will sit back and say, man, there was that one time. If I'd only been able to make that one time work. Yeah. that's And that's what they live with. And that's somebody tonight will live with that for the rest of their lives. Whether it's a turnover, and you hope it's not a turnover. That's the most painful. But a missed net, a missed chance... Absolutely. They'll think about that for the rest of their lives. But comes with playing. So who do I, th- who do I think is going to win? <sighs> Knights won the first three. Guelph won the next three. Anybody can win this one. Whoever executes, that's who wins. Whoever can deal with that pressure the best, the feeling that 
uh-oh, what if this happens? Whoever can put that aside the best. And right now, I don't have an answer for that because these two teams haven't been in this situation. So if one of them had played to seven games in the first round and won, you could say, yeah, they would have an advantage. Calgary Flames one year went, what, seven games all the way through? They won seven, one and seven, one and seven, one and seven, I believe, or one and seven, one and seven, one and six, something like that. And then they went to seven in the Stanley Cup final, and you would think, ah, they, they have it. They lost. They lost 2-1. It was close. They didn't execute. And I bet you there are Flames players right now still thinking back. Man, there was that one time I went offside. If I hadn't gone offside, we probably would have scored. Uh, interesting thing happening in California. One story before we go. They are getting rid or thinking about this. They have lots of legislation in California. I wouldn't want to read their their legal challenges and things that go on. I certainly wouldn't want to read through all the legislation that exists in the state. They are looking at legislating to get rid of the little shampoo bottles in hotel bathrooms. You may have been to a hotel and you have those dispensers, kind of like when you're in a locker room, and they say that they are saving enough plastic that they're looking at it. It's uh, AB1162. That's the legislation, getting rid of the little shampoo bottles. I'm going to miss those. News is coming up next. Jack LaBelle on the way. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his help. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln, 684 Warncliffe Road South. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.